Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick up the brains of 25 of the world's best homebrewers and bring you their secrets, tips, and tricks. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. All right, and on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub and, well, we're going to talk a little bit about where we think 2018 is going to go and also about a very cool thing that you should do if you're in San Diego this January. We're going to go to the brewery and talk about, well, a recent experience that we had with Zymergy Live. And then finally, we're going to hit the lounge and talk to, uh, well, one of Denny's buddies from South America and find out what it means to be a home brewer in South America and actually now a professional meat maker, too. Yeah, man, he's got some really cool stuff going on down there. But uh, before we do all that, we're going to listen to a few words from some of the people who help support this program and make it possible. So please stick around. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iodophor. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by... The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey there, we are back. Thanks for sticking around. And before we uh, go any farther, we have a few announcements to make. Sure. One is, well, did you check your podcast feed? Who, me? Because even though it was Christmas time, we still released an episode last week. Yeah, we released an episode of The Brew Files all about the organizational blues and just, well, exactly how you can organize your brewery to make your brew day a lot better. You can actually see how Denny and I both do our breweries, and uh, big surprise, we do things a little different. <laughs> yeah, but not, you know, not as different as you might think. No, that's true, because we're both old farts and we've converged in the same lazy path. That's right. So don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, 
which for this part of the year is brand spanking new. Mr. Khan, take it away. It is Habitat for Humanity, and this is a charity that is near and dear to my heart, not only because of the great work that they're doing, but because of my dear departed mother. Uh, when she was living in Phoenix, she was in her 70s, and she joined an all-women's Habitat for Humanity team and built several houses with a team of women, which was extremely cool. Uh, being an artist, she made sure to paint her tool belt and hard hat. I have pictures of her wearing her stuff there on a job site. And Habitat for Humanity is something that touches every community, no matter where you live out there. So please, please get involved by donating to our Patreon account, going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, click that Patreon link, and give us a few bucks for Habitat for Humanity. And don't forget, there's a homebrew connection as well, because one of Habitat for Humanity's big supporters is President Jimmy Carter, who, as you may remember, was the one who signed into law the federal legalization of homebrew. So, hey, it's actually connected. <laughs> well, it's connected two ways then, you know? Uh, my mom, who only drank one beer in her entire life, and I'm happy to say it was one of mine, um, and Jimmy. So anyway, get involved, help out, pledge a buck or two through Patreon. And don't forget, guys, we dug through everybody's uh, suggestions. There are a lot of great suggestions for charities out there, but keep them coming because we're going to still keep doing this, and we really do appreciate uh, people who pinged in and, and raised the flag on a couple of these things. So thank Th you again. Yep, every six months we change charities, so please keep those ideas coming, because we love to have a lot of ideas to check out. And now it's time for Feedback! So, as we always do, we'd love to get your messages and read them out and figure out just exactly what it's telling us that we need to know about the podcast. And as we had just mentioned, we had an episode of The Brew Files last week all about organizational blues, and we had some great suggestions, because I had a couple of things that I still felt were inadequately organized in my brewery. And people came through, particularly with the idea of a couple of remote-controlled switches, because one of my complaints was, I don't have a good waterproof switching system for my pumps. And a couple of folks wrote in and left suggestions about different sorts of outdoor remote-controlled pump switches that you can actually use. And of course, I'm a complete knucklehead, because I have one of those on the waterfall in my backyard. <laughs> it's one of those things that was too easy, huh? It was just too obvious. Well, it's just kind of more like, wow, okay... Talk about being totally addled and forgetting the things around you, which is one of the lessons I love to teach people. So, yeah, that's a great one. Uh, so, please, by all means, I know Leonard left a comment on our Facebook page talking about, you know, these rolling racks that he has. If you have other ideas about how you organize your brewery, send it into the podcast at experimentalbrew.com email address. Send it on our Facebook page. Send it wherever you can find us, because I want to take all this information and compile it into sort of a, well, a nice little compendium so that we can share with everybody and go, are you having organizational blues? Go look here. Yeah, really, man. That's great. Okay, ready for a beer now? If you insist. I do insist. We're going to head over to the pub, have a couple beers, and we will be right back. Please stick around. Y-East would like to welcome everyone to the new year with our first release of Private Collection Strains for 2018, inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix. 
Y Yeast's Burton IPA blend, West Coast IPA, and Rocky Mountain Lager strains will lend their profiles to an array of malt and bitterness balances, mid to low ester formation, and most important, drinkability, for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Y Yeast has over 30 years of experience producing premium liquid yeast, so you can brew with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals do. These strains will be available January through March at your local homebrew shop. For more information, visit whyyeastlab.com. here to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA. And we are having a couple beers, and I think you're having something kind of special today, huh? Yeah, I am. I'm having a glass of Embrasser Le Cint from our good friend St. Somewhere Brewing Company, a.k.a. Bob Sylvester. So last year when we did the episode with Bob Sylvester that you heard on the, on the main show, yeah, it was a great interview, but we may not have realized that while we were doing that interview, he was actually brewing a collaboration beer with the folks from Jester King and Brandon Jones of Yazoo Brewing Company and Embrace the Funk. And Embrasser Lacent is actually that collaboration beer. And all I can say, it's as funky and as sour and as weird and as strange as you would expect from the minds of those three breweries. <laughs> and the twisted minds. Oh, yeah. And of course, it's it's really cool. It started apparently with a homebrew recipe from Brandon, and then they added 15 gallons of fresh squeezed citrus peels from a uh, local citrus, uh, citrus orchard in Odessa, Florida. And they they're these heirloom varieties that are disappearing. And then they added Tennessee oats, and they did Brandon's yeast and everything else in it. And yeah, it's just, it's really impressively fruity and funky. And well worth it and almost damn near impossible to find. So sorry, y'all. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm having a beer not quite as exotic, but still uh, one of my all-time favorites. I'm sitting here with a glass of Rochefort 10, and it is every bit as stunningly good as it always is. Fruity but restrained. The alcohol is well hidden. Perfect drinkable body. I just adore this beer. We want to get back to uh, a story that we talked about uh, in past episodes. And this is uh, our friend Miguel Loza and his daughter who is fighting cancer. And there's an event going on to raise money to help out in San Diego. Uh, Why don't you talk about that, Drew? Sure. So Brian Trout, who is a longtime member of Quaff and the founder of the San Diego craft cider, craft cider society, uh, and just kind of all around beer nerd. He teamed up with a roller brewing company in Carlsbad, California. And on January 13th, they are going to be releasing what they call Brian trout cancer fighter. And it's a British golden ale that they hot bursted with galaxy and equinaut. And what's really cool about it is 45% of the sales are going to go to fund Sarah Brown's fight against lymphoma. So Brian actually said that he came up with this idea because, well, he went to go visit them 
And because he was really excited to buy their beers. And I mean, let's face it, if you're making beers that are exciting people in San Diego, you must be doing something really right because that's an embarrassment of riches. And he had ran into their head brewer, a guy named uh, Raleigh uh, Marseilles, and he said he's a former homebrewer out of San Luis Obispo. They've spent an afternoon walking around the tanks and drinking things out of the tanks and talking about beer nerdery and recipe nerdery and everything else and really sort of hit it off and got really deep into the weeds and possibly deep into the cups. And <laughs> Oh, no, they wouldn't do that, would they? No, never. And they they hatched together this idea of taking a golden ale and giving it some San Diego hop characteristics and using that to help uh, pay for uh, Sarah's treatments. So if you're in San Diego, or actually really in Carlsbad, California, on January 13th, you can totally go and hit them up, and 45% of all the sales of that beer are going to go to that uh, fund page. Now, the other cool thing is that our friends at Country Malt Group, you know, who are related to our sponsors, uh, they actually donated 100% of the malt for this brew. So there's a little additional ceiling of well, uh, profit in there so that we can get a little bit more paid into the fund. Now, if you can't make it to San Diego, don't forget that Sarah still does actually have a GoFundMe page up and running, uh, collecting money to help uh, fund her treatment. And uh, trust me, Miguel's a really good dude. He's helped us out with experiments before in the past. He's growing hops in Baja, California. So help the yeah, man out. I, I had a chance to meet Miguel at uh, Hop and Brew School up in Yakima a couple of years ago, and he is a great guy. And uh, as we all know, kids with cancer is about the worst thing in the world. So anything we can do to help, anything you can do to help is well worth it. So there you go. Roller Brewing Company, January 13th, starting at noon, and pretty much anywhere that you can find it, 45% into Sarah's Fund. Go do it. Have a beer. Right on. Okay, and this is our crystal ball segment, huh? Yes. Yes, it, it, kept in a, it kept in a mayonnaise jar on Funkin' Wagnall's porch. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how many people are old enough to remember that. So, uh, basically, uh, we saw some articles that kind of predicted the trends for craft beer and homebrewing for 2018. So, we decided that we would make some of our own predictions. And our number one prediction is that hazy IPAs will fade and I think that I've already been seeing that happen. Um, they are not as ubiquitous as they once were. I think that they're going to stick around for a while, but you'll be seeing fewer and fewer of them until eventually they just kind of show up occasionally like the black IPA. So, yeah, and I'll take the opposite tag on that. I do agree that hazy IPAs will fade. And like you, I, I'm seeing that as well. I mean, for a while, even here in L.A., it felt like, you couldn't walk into a brewery without seeing, you know, three different hazy IPAs on tap. What I think it's going to do is I think it's going to retrench. You're going to see the better version survive and possibly see people sort of stop experimenting so much once they actually know how it works and produce sort of a consistent version of the hazy IPA idea. Part of the reason I don't think it's going to go away as much as, say, black IPA or Cascadian dark ale, as everybody in the Northwest love to call it is I don't think it's going to go away as much because I think it provides something different to people's palates than a black IPA did, right? I mean, a black IPA really, at least the initial ones, were all just an IPA that was a different color. I mean, that, that was literally the only thing that was different about it was the, that visual appearance. The year later had some of them that started to get the rose characters in there. But to me, that was really no different than an American porter, 
right? Like a robust American porter with with a lot of hops. I've had a lot of those. Oh, I would I would argue that uh, that roast character was in there from the very beginning, and as the black IPA went along, it got cut back. Not in the big ones down here. In the big in the big ones down here, where the trend really kind of kicked off, like in San Diego, and started to spiral even further. Those were all done with Cinemar. They were either done with Cinemar or they were done with Craftland. So yeah, well. Those are the only ones I ever liked, too. So, Anyway, right. we'll have to see what happens. Um, we both think that you're going to be seeing fewer of the hazy New England-style IPAs. I think it's going to maybe go a bit farther than Drew, but hey, we'll uh, see. I think what you're going to see is I think you're going to see the, the better ones survive, and I think that it's really because they provide that hot flavor without the hot bitterness. And I think that's what some of the market wants. Yeah, Um I I agree, but you know, and and then there's the argument that I've heard uh, when I've been discussing this with people it, that the breweries brew them because people ask for them, and that's that's why they're still around. But you have to think back; nobody asked for a hazy, low bitterness IPA in the first place. The brewery brewed it, and people drank it, and so I, I'm not sure that. Uh, the fact that people asking for it will drive the market as much as uh, some people do. Yeah. Well, I still think right now you're you're still in a hot enough market that you're a fool if you're not doing it. But that's from a business perspective, not from a beer taste yeah, perspective. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's true also. But I mean, for instance, there was a brewery here in town, a very good brewery that was making like three or five of them at one point, and they have now just dialed back to one, and it's only around occasionally. And I, I kind of think that. That's where things may end up. So we'll see. Now, as a uh, side note to that, and actually point number two, I think that the West Coast IPA will be back. And part of the reason why I say that is I'm starting to see both here in L.A. and in San Diego a, a very obvious trend of beers very explicitly and proudly calling out their clear nature. Uh El Segundo Brewing Company, which is, uh, in oddly enough, El Segundo, California, very well-renowned makers of IPAs. They had a IPA that they did that was called Clear AF IPA, and I've seen other ones happening. So I think we're going to actually start to see more and more of this where people are going to explicitly call it out. Now, what I do think is also going to happen as a sort of a evolution that happens because of the New England IPA is the West Coast IPAs are going to soften up their bitterness and focus a little bit more on the the hop flavor characteristics. I think we're, I think you're going to start to see probably a rise of some of these hybrids that aren't hazy, but they have those New England hazy IPA uh, flavor profiles. So the West Coast IPA will be back. I think it's going to be slightly softer, but I think there's going to still be a very proud trend of people going, my beer is clear. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm definitely seeing... Or, or tasting maybe more fruitiness in the hops and beers and stuff like that. But I'm not really seeing a cutback on assertive bitterness yet. So it may happen, but at this point I haven't seen anything to lead me to believe that will be the case. Well, we'll just have to see. All right. What's, what's right, trend man. number three, Denny? Trend number three is more craft loggers to which I say, hell yeah. 
<laughs> I am a I am a big fan of loggers, and uh, you know there's some very very good craft loggers being made. And one of the things I like about them is that they are nice straight ahead beers. You won't see a craft lager generally with five different kinds of fruit and botanicals in it. No, I agree, and I think craft loggers also tend to be well. The people who are doing those tend to take the whole skill of things a little more seriously. So uh, it's a lot harder to hide when you're making a, a craft lager. So you got to be a little bit more on your game. I also think it's very telling that when we talk to a lot of our brewers that we interview for these things, you know, one of those questions that we ask a lot is, hey, you know, what do you find yourself longing to drink? And the number of times that we've got an answer back that's like a Pilsner or an American lager. I mean, yeah, that's probably and one of the more popular answers that we get. Yeah, that's true. And and also just remember that loggers aren't just that fizzy yellow stuff. We have there are wonderful loggers out there like uh, Dunkel and uh, Bach and stuff like that. Uh so while I have no trouble with the nice German pills, keep in mind that if you're not a yellow beer drinker, if you like something a little maltier, there are lager styles for that too. Yeah. And I'll I'll say this past summer in LA I started to see more breweries carrying uh, a Pilsner, a Hellas, or uh, even my, my favorite, a Cream Ale. So I think yeah. we're, we're getting there. And I think that ties into point number four, which is I think we're going to see a return of simplicity. Now, we'll be harping on this uh, more and more as the year goes on for reasons that will become increasingly clear as the year goes on. <laughs> shh, shh, it's a big secret. Yep. But I think we're due for that uh, turn away from the throw everything at the kettle and see what sticks approach. You know, sort of the overly sweet, you know, stouts with 50,000 ingredients and the saisons that are also overly sweet and have, you know, too many weird, incongruous, not entirely sensical combinations just because they sound new and fantastic. So I think I think we're going to get into a little bit of a little bit more simple uh, style of brewing. It's not as sexy, cool. It's not as, you know, super Instagrammable, marketable, but I do think it tastes better. You know, I I would have to disagree that the throw everything in the kettle approach is sexy, cool. I think it's uh, kind of a... No, but I mean, look, it, you're going you're gonna to garner more interest from people, as you can say. Here, have my uh, my kumquat saison with my crout leaves aged in a red wine barrel for 15 months and dosed with three different forms of lacto. <laughs> then saying, hey, here have my saison. Up to a point, up to a point, you may garner more interest. But once people have tasted a bunch of those beers and went, you know, this is just not really working, mm-hmm. then I think that there's actually going to be less interest. Yeah. Well, um, but I think, and, and I, I think, think it's still, I think it's all the simplicity is not just going to be in the ingredients and flavors in the beer. But I think that uh, from what I'm seeing, a lot of people are simplifying their approach to brewing in the home brewing world. Mm -hmm. I've talked to more and more people who have gone from totally geeking out with uh, all the equipment and processes and stuff like that to going, you know, I just want to make beer and have fun doing it. So I, I predict that what we're going to be seeing is a is not just a simplification of flavors leading to a more direct flavoring beer, but also we're going to be seeing a simplification of processes that will lead to people enjoying what they're doing more and maybe even brewing more. Well, I can never argue with anything that gets people brewing more. 
Yep, right. I agree. Any other trends we got to cover there, buddy? There is the hope that we're going to have new ways to describe sour beers. Um, and that would be really great other than saying, damn, this is sour. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there are two problems, right? So one of them is inadequate ways of describing sourness. You know, some people have tried to use pH, but that's a bad indication of, of the actual flavor impact. I have started to see some breweries start to actually put titratable acidity on there or TA. Uh, and that's awesome because I think that actually does tie into the culinary aspects of, of sourness. But I think even more helpful, and, and I'm not the person to do this because I'm way too stupid about it, is, man, we need to come up with a better way of talking about this stuff other than, oh, yeah, that's a sour, funky beer. That's a wild yeah, beer. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, at some point in time, we've got to get we've got to get into this world, or at least I feel like we have to get into this world of that's a, a, a an American farmhouse blonde, or you know, something like that. Yeah, you know, where where we actually have sort of a little bit of guidance on this sort of stuff that we can talk about, so that not to eliminate people's creativity, but to be able to help foster the discussion. So, uh, Michael Tonsmeyer, Brandon Jones, all you other guys out there, we are looking at you. If you make these beers, how about starting to come up with a, a list of descriptors uh, for them? Next time you're drinking one, sit down, put on your thinking cap, and come up with some other words than sour and funky. Yeah. All right. And so those are our five trends that we're seeing for 2018. But I know those aren't the only trends. I know that there are prognosticators out there in our audience. What are you prognosticating? What are you foreseeing? Yeah. Where tell the cards you tell think. you. Don't, don't just tell us we're wrong. Tell us what you think. We readily acknowledge that we could very likely be wrong because, hey, just like everybody else, we're guessing at this. So let's hear what your guesses are. Where do you think that uh, the beer world and home brewing is going to go in 2018 based on what you've seen happening? And now we're going to make a quick stop in the brewery as we head over to the lounge. And we're going to talk about uh, a recent Zymergy Live seminar that was held online with Dogfish Head, huh? Yep. It was fun. Okay. We're going to finish up these beers. We're going to head over to the brewery. So stick around and we're going to be back in just a minute. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. Strolled over to the brewery, and we have the stainless steel set up. Everything's going, except that we're not actually brewing today. We're going to talk about uh, something that uh, the AHA is doing. If you're an AHA member, you can access live webinars. And uh, there was one recently that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So, by the way, these are these events are called Zymergy Live, and they're actually based on a thing that the Brewers Association has done for years, where they do these 
you know, brewing webinars all the time where you actually can get access into technical topics and they're pretty awesome. And so, by the way, if you want to know what the, the governing committee does, uh, this is one of the things because I said, hey, you know, those power hour things that you guys do with the Brewers Association, those are pretty awesome. It'd be great if you did those with home brewers. And so they turned around and they made them. And just last month in December, they had a Zymergy Live featuring the folks from Dogfish Ed. And literally they had conference room set up with a bunch of the staff members at Dogfish Ed, including Sam. They're live uh, talking about various ones of their beers. Now, of course, the whole thing was actually put together, as all these things are, as, with a little bit of a promotional angle. Because Sam was just involved with the boys from Beer Advocate in a brand new book called Project Extreme Brewing. And they've launched that to, you know, bring together a bunch of extreme recipes, which, of course, you know, Sam knows a thing or two about. But what I thought was really great was, you know, you could have a single presenter in there and they can talk their heads off. And somebody like Sam could certainly come in and and do one of these presentations without, you know, too much fuss. But he actually sat down and brought his team in and gave his team a chance to talk, which was really cool to actually hear from the people who were, you know, on the floor every day or in the lab every day doing these actual projects and talking about their experiences. So people were sitting in the chat room and asking questions and those were getting asked and you're getting live video feedback. It was just really kind of nifty to see, but we learned some cool things like the way that Dogfish Head is now doing some of their infusions into their beers. They're actually using these giant tea baskets now that are designed that they fill with like sliced fruit and they add them into the post boil slash whirlpool phase of the, the whole thing. And their argument is that if you just if you just try and do it as a, a dry hopping addition, that it only incorporates, you know, just the aroma. Uh, and they say the same thing with uh, extract as well. So their argument was that by taking the whole sliced fruit and putting it into that whirlpool phase and getting it nice and hot, they're not only extracting aroma compounds, but they're also extracting flavor compounds and sort of incorporating and infusing that flavor throughout the entire beer instead of just the aroma. And they were talking about that particularly with their flesh and blood, which is where all the oranges come in, and their sea quench beer that has a sea cucumber in it, I think. And they also talked a couple of other fun projects that they were doing. Like they now have a, in the new brew pub, they, they now have a barrel draft system. And it uses CO2 to push from barrels as part of the taproom experience. So it's not just having barrel-aged beer. It's having barrel-aged beer fresh from the barrel. And it's also this really cool rig where it looks almost like a complicated Burton Union system with multiple feeding stainless steel pipes going everywhere and very confusing and steampunky, which is kind of nifty. Uh, but that was kind of their their new thing of say, hey, what would it taste like if we served this beer fresh out of a out of a brand new Buffalo Trace barrel? Yeah, and how's that different than serving that beer, you know, after it's been aged in the, the Buffalo Trace barrel for a while, but it doesn't get any further contact time and it's not part of that that whole experience. Now, by the way, this also brings up part of my mind of, you know, with tap rooms, one of the things that I think brewers are gonna have to start to focus on is the tap room experience. And this was one of their examples of how they are actually doing that as a as a reason to go visit the uh the brewery. And they also even talked about some of the the things that Sam is desperate to try and get to work. And the the funny one that, that he wanted to do, because, of course, Sam's going to do crazy things, and I thought, Danny, that this was absolutely perfect for you, was he wants to make a goza with crushed snails in it so that he can call it escargoza. 
No. No. Yes. Just just no. <laughs> if nothing else, Escargoza cracked me up. But this was, I think Sam and company were on the line for an hour and a half, 90 minutes, you know, and it was a wonderful experience, a great chance to be able to to sit down and ask some questions and listen to their experiences. If you have an opportunity, pay attention to the HA emails. If you remember the HA, you'll get them. Watch the website. You can register. And once you register, you'll get a reminder and you go in. It just uses WebEx. You know, if you're a business person at all, you've used WebEx in the past. It's not that complicated. But you get a chance to actually sit down with some people and uh, pick their brains or at least hear what their brains have to say. So by all means, make sure that you get a chance, uh, if you do, to go into one of these Zymergy live events and see if you can't learn something new. Innovation or gimmick, you decide. I have. Well, well that's in terms of the brewing. I don't think the Zymergy live event is an innovation. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't no, think the I was gonna say, live I was going to say that earlier, but you didn't stop talking, so I didn't have a chance to. <laughs> yeah and the other thing too is that uh, all of these presentations are uh, archived on the aha website so you can uh, go back and watch one of the ones that you missed including one that i did on uh, the philosophy of recipe design use malt water heat yeast and hops <laughs> yeah although why you'd want to hear me talk i don't know it says the guy's talking on his podcast yeah right we're going to uh, get out of the brewery here, head over to the lounge, and uh, listen to an interview that Drew did with my buddy Garrett Garfield from Chile. So we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. <laughs> Comfy chair time, folks. That's right. It's the lounge. And we're here today to talk homebrewing in South America. Uh, Denny, we want to go ahead and uh, introduce Garrett before we actually get into the whole uh, interview? Sure. Uh, last July, I was invited to go down to Chile for the South American Homebrew Cup. I judged there, I did a seminar, and I met some really, really great, great people. And uh, one of them was a guy named Garrett Garfield, who they had brought in to be an interpreter for me. Uh, fortunately, most of the guys there spoke much better English than I spoke Spanish, so he didn't have too much work to do. Garrett is from Texas, and he moved down to Chile to be an English teacher, ended up getting married to a Chilean woman, and uh, lives down there now. His uh, in-laws uh, work on a agricultural station, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. He, uh, he made a beer that I got to judge that was made of both blue and purple corn and had 
guava, as I recall, in it. Uh, Very interesting. And Garrett has also gotten into making mead, and he cultures his own strains of yeast from the various fruits on the agricultural station. So uh, because my internet connection is so lousy out here in the woods and we had to talk to him via Skype, Drew got together and uh, chatted with Garrett about what he's doing and what's going on down there in Chile. Well, I think also particularly interesting sort of the challenges of being a homebrewer in Chile and ingredients and what's exactly happening with the homebrew and the craft beer scene down there as well. Yep, right. So uh, kick back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and uh, check out this conversation that Drew had with my buddy Garrett Garfield. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to The Lounge. This is Drew. And, well, today it's time for a segment on, well, lounging internationally. And I have online uh, with me right now uh, Garrett, uh, Garrett Garfield. Uh, Garrett, you're down in uh, Chile, right? Yes, that is true. Where whereabouts in Chile are we? Well, I'm uh, I'm living in the capital in Santiago, um, and I've been here for about six and a half years now. All right. So now, where are you from originally, and just how did you get from there to Santiago? That's the question a lot of people ask me down here too. Uh, so originally, I'm from McAllen, Texas, uh, Rio Grande Valley, in, uh, the southern tip of of Texas, right next to Mexico. And when I was in college at UT Austin, I had the chance to study abroad. So I did that for for a year here. And yeah, I've ended up staying for lots of different reasons over the years, but looks like I'm here to stay for, uh, uh, for the uh, long haul. And what were you studying? Oh, I was studying history and uh, and Spanish. That was the main the main driver was just I wanted to to re- like really get to like full fluency with my Spanish. Well, there you go. Certainly, no better way to do that than immersion. And and now, of course, yeah. as you said, uh, you've married into the culture and and are there somewhat permanently now. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, so now you're you're in Chile. I, how did you get into beer? Did you get into beer before you left Texas and down to Chile, or was that afterwards? Uh, well, I got into. I came here when I was. When I was twenty, mm-hmm. uh, actually, had my so. Oh well, so if you were there when you were beer. twenty, you couldn't have a beer in the United States then. You never did, right? <laughs> exactly. No, well, uh, <laughs> I had I had my ways of of getting beers, and so uh, I, I was still. I guess yeah, that last year I was living in in Austin. I had started getting into all the the craft beer scene and and trying different things out, and and yeah, I really liked it. So when I got here. Um, and as a fun, weird little fact, my first legal beer was when I was in the, the airport. I had a layover in Canada. And so I was in Toronto and I drank a beer there on my way here. And then after that, I was legal for the rest of my life. So no big 21 or, or anything like that. Wait, hold on. But, so uh, you went Austin to Toronto and then down to Chile? Yeah, well, I... I ended up using a, a bunch of miles that were saved up on a, on a credit card. And so they don't give you the best flights. So I had to go to McAllen, to Houston, Houston, to, to Toronto, and then Toronto to Santiago. So, yeah, weird. I was going to say that might violate, violate a couple <laughs> of laws of basic geography. So uh, do, do you remember what that first beer, uh, that first legal beer was in Canada? Oh, man. I want to say it was just like a, just a, a 
typical like macro logger or something. It wasn't so, anything. It's like a Molson or a Lombots or something. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds familiar. Maybe one of those two. There you go. But yeah, that. Well, and so now, then you're in Chile, and you said you started to get into into craft beer a little bit, you know, in Austin or sorry, in Texas, uh, and. What was what was there in Chile when you when you first moved there uh, for for beer? I'm assuming they didn't have well, a craft beer scene then. Well, they they did uh, just like really starting out in the in the time that I've been here since 2011. Um, I've really been able to see a, a, a huge transformation in the craft beer scene. And when I first got here, there were uh, lots of different craft beers that the majority of which you really don't see anymore these days because they, uh, well, you know, they, they didn't have the business figured out. They didn't have the recipes figured out. And that was uh, a big problem for me as a consumer, just because all the beers, it was like, as if someone was homebrewing, you know, in a lot of cases they probably were, and they were just selling it and lots of off flavors. So it was not, not fun drinking that first, uh, that first year or so. And that's why I got into home brewing because I missed having good beers. And I went to uh, an Oktoberfest uh, here, like right outside of Santiago that first year. And and I saw there was a, there was a, a company called Mini Cerveceria that was advertising that they they taught people how to how to make beer at home, and and they had the all the different equipment and kits to to make it, the ingredients. So I was like, oh, cool. So bought that and ended up home brewing like uh took a while it was a little intimidating at first by the time i took the the course that that they offered um it was like the very it was like starting home brewing on on advanced so you know the the three the three pots set up uh with the sparge and the sparge the kettles and all that stuff that uh you know is is pretty hard when you're first starting out so yeah, those those first few brew days were were brutal, ten, twelve hour days trying to figure everything out and get the right temperatures. But yeah, uh, I remember my first couple of brew days like that. You know, those first all grains, and you're just like, oh. And I started I started with extract as well, so like I I feel like I at least had the training wheels experience of handling fermentation and all that. But yeah, starting starting straight in with a three vessel system, that's going right in the deep end. Yeah, and that's actually how they how most people uh, learn here. I I think unfortunately, because it's so intimidating. I've had many people that have told me they've made uh, like two or three batches of beer, and then like, well, I haven't made anything in a year because I don't have the time. And I'm like, well, you can always make extract, and it's a lot faster. So I don't know. We're I'm trying to spread the word on extracting and brew in a bag here, just because uh, it's both of those still really haven't taken off. Well, and I wonder why that is. I mean, you would think that people would naturally sort of glom onto some of the easier techniques that are out there. Do you, do you feel like there's, do you feel like maybe there's a thing where the people who are going to get involved with this hobby, you know, say in an area where there isn't necessarily a lot of craft beer or there's starting to be a growing craft beer scene. Do you think maybe there's a lot of it where people are like, no, no, this is the right way to do it. There's like that Germanic traditional influence type thing going on. That seems- oh yeah. Yeah. That, that's big here. And, uh, and especially because there is a big German influence here on the traditionally with the, with the beer scene, um, like 
when Germans were going all across the world, like in the, in the end of the 20th century, they brought their brewing tradition and their hops uh, here and like to Southern Chile, especially. And, and yeah, so that's, that's still very big. The biggest craft beer uh, or craft brewery Kunzmann today is a, well, German, German owned company, more or less. It, they got bought out 50, 50, <laughs> but, but, uh, but still, yeah, they got that big German brewing tradition. So a lot of people really, really think that, oh, that's that's the way to do it. Got to got to go old school, right? And therefore, let's make this the most intimidating thing in the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Well, so now, given where given where you're at, and given sort of uh, you know this situation now that you find yourself in, what do you, what do you make nowadays, even as you're starting to have a, a craft beer scene uh, come up in Santiago? What do I make as a, as a home brewer? Yeah. Uh, well, so, uh, I think that, yeah, that reflects like what you can, what you can get here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's for the last few years, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of American beers that have shown up. There's been uh, a couple of American guys importing beers and, and some other companies too where now you can actually find like good IPAs, uh, you know, like Coronado or uh, Coronado, I guess I should say, um, (laughs) from California and Ballast Point. I don't know. Even Sierra Nevada showed up recently. So there's, there's a lot of really big, good uh, American and then also European beers showing up, but uh, they just, they tend to be on the pricey range. You know, it's not really uh, economical to go out and buy a six pack so much. So, wait, wait, how, um, so how much does a how much does a six pack of Sierra Nevada cost? Would have to, I'd have to double check, but I think that would be like about fifteen bucks, or something like that. Fifteen, eighteen dollars. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's like you know, you you go to the store and you you spend like four dollars for for a beer, you know, for an imported American beer. So. It's you know about what you'd pay, or a little bit less than what you would pay uh, at a bar or or a restaurant here that sells those. So yeah, it's it's okay, but that's why when I when I homebrew, I like to make a bunch of um, like drinkable stuff, like uh, or high drinkability. So uh, at least for me, like American pale ales or IPAs, things that I can I can get, but it would break the bank if I uh, if you know was buying one or two six packs a week at least. So that's why I ended up brewing a bunch of that stuff. So it almost sounds like, or I mean, I should say it almost feels like in a lot of ways, if you look at the founding of homebrewing here in the U S you know, that was done by a lot of guys who had like gone overseas and served in the military and been in like, you know, the UK and Germany and got addicted to those good beers and came back and said, well, I can find some of those, but they're super expensive. So I'm just going to figure out how to make it myself. It feels a little yeah. bit like that same situation. It's amazing. Yeah, pr- pretty much. <laughs> History repeats itself. Well, it's it's amazing how much uh, economics can provide a motivator to learn new skills. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So now, what, what challenges do you face as a brewer in Chile? I know like when Denny and I went to uh, Brazil a couple of years ago, yeah, like one of their biggest challenges was yeast, uh, and actually even just getting this sort of a variety of ingredients. I mean, obviously up here in the states, we are we're somewhat uh, filled with an embarrassment of riches. Yes, yes, uh, Americans, we're or, or you guys, me being an expat, it's pretty 
it's I don't know. <laughs> you guys are very very spoiled, I guess I could say, in in all the best way possible. It's just awesome. All the different yeast selection. That's that's probably the biggest thing that we uh, that we're lacking here. It's just getting getting decent liquid yeast. Um, the that company that uh, that's that's an importer of craft beer. They're called Nirvana. Um, they they've been importing yeast for people over the last couple of years or so, but not not too many people really caught on to it because uh, they they still don't. A lot of people don't know that it's very easy to to reuse yeast, and so they think like, oh, you know, if I spend fifteen dollars for for a vial of of white labs or something like that's that's just so much more expensive because you can get a, a dry yeast pack for like four bucks. So that's why a lot of people are just like, eh, I'm not even going to bother with it. Then I have to make a starter. So unfortunately those little things, they, they're not really, uh, practiced here. Mm-hmm. And so that can really be limiting. Um, so yeah, I would say yeast is the main thing when it comes to malts and, and hops, things are, things are okay. Like there, there's a really big, uh, amount that's imported from from all over for both of those and chile also has its own uh patagonia malt which is really good um and and yeah i like to go actually to the i don't, I don't know what they call it in english the the maltster the maltadilla mm-hmm. and uh and i just buy direct because it's it's so cheap it's really really cheap just buy sacks so I started doing that recently. Nice. And I know, I know like when we were in Brazil as well, it was like a lot of, a lot of firemen came over and a lot of uh, European hops. And I think they were just starting to get a fair amount of American hops there too. Is that somewhat similar? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's actually a pretty good selection. The last, the last few years, things have changed a lot. I remember at first I had to, uh, I had to really bring a lot of my own. It, I still do. Cause it's just cheaper. When I go back to the, when I go back to Texas, about once or twice a year, I always load up by pounds of of hops. Always fun to deal with customs, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but, I, I'm going to say that that's going to be an interesting conversation, sir. What's all this leafy green material in your luggage? <laughs> oh, that's happened multiple times, and they they don't believe me that it's just hops. But uh, I don't know, it's it, it's hit or miss. Like I've actually had people when I or the customs officials when I tell them that uh that that I make beer they're like oh what what's the name of your brewery I want, uh, can I try it somewhere I'm like no no just personal consumption <laughs> and then they go oh okay well you have a nice day sir enjoy your hops but unfortunately <laughs> that's not as not as common as the what are you doing here with with this <laughs> well. Are there other uh, challenges that you face uh, in Chile other than just, you know, say ingredients? I mean, it, it sounds like you've got a nice little culture that's building up there. And it sounds like you also have the challenges that, that you're going to have to be the promoter of good yeast management and brewing a bag. You know, hey, folks, it doesn't have to be that hard. Yeah, yeah. I've been do- I've been I've been spreading the word uh, this past year since I joined the, the local the local home brewer organization, Chile Brewers. Um and so, yeah, I've been doing that and spreading the word on, on mead too, but that's, that's another issue. Um, but yeah, I guess basically the only other thing would just be that everything is always like, I don't know, more like, except for malt, um, everything is like 50% more expensive. And so, uh, 
when it comes to the ingredients, but also for equipment, there's just not as, not as many good, like, you know, snazzy little accessories, all those things that you probably don't need, but are really cool to have. Mm -hmm. So that stuff. Yeah. There's not that much of a selection. Um, the other thing that, uh, that I would say is (laughs) unfortunate is there's a lot of, it can be really hard to find uh, simple things like, um, I don't know, corny keg connectors. And so it's happened to me where none of the stores have them and my thing broke. And I've had to just like ship it from from Amazon. Really expensive because no one has them in the entire country. So I guess that would be the only And and I'm guessing you don't get uh, Amazon Prime with that. (laughs) No, no, yeah. I think the best it did was like maybe five or six business days. But yeah, it was, it, it was expensive. So that's why only, only really light things like, yeah, the, the connectors or the, or else I got a bag because no one was selling a, uh, any home, like brewing a bag. So I had to ship that, but thankfully those are light and they're cheap. But yeah, I'd say that's about it. Things are, are doing pretty good here these days. There's a lot of stores. Santiago's got like five or six homebrew stores. So pr- pretty good. Well, and I was gonna say, how many uh, how many homebrewers do you think uh, you have in Santiago? Well, the, that's a good question. They were they were just uh, wondering that, um, and like I guess maybe a week or two ago, Chile Brewers was doing surveys and trying to get a good amount or uh, get a good uh, estimate. And no one's for sh- no one's really sure, but it could be anywhere from six hundred to six thousand. <laughs> so. There's a uh, there's a lot of wiggle room in between because it's hard to count. Like yeah, a lot of those people maybe they made beer a few times, mm-hmm. like I was saying before, um, and then it's just intimidating or they you know life happens and they don't make any anymore. So mm-hmm. maybe that would in- the higher number would include a lot of those people, mm-hmm. but regular homebrewers maybe are like around a thousand in the whole country more or less. Well, I was gonna say what Santiago is like. 7 million people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's about the size of Houston more, more or less. Uh, so it's, uh, it sounds like you have more work to do to go spread the love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot to be done. Well, and I wanted to go back real quick. You, you touched on, you said there were issues about mead or challenges about mead. What'd you mean by that? Oh yeah. Oh, well, well n- no real, challenges besides uh no one knows what the hell it is uh and and to make matters even worse well mead can be confusing in english mm-hmm. as because uh, well i'm starting a, a meadery myself right now i'm actually at my meadery pressing some some cherries as we speak but um but yeah when my mom tells people that i'm making mead in, in english they're like oh so garrett's a butcher now but uh <laughs> But in Spanish, it's not any better. In Spanish, it's hidromiel, and hidromiel sounds like it's like hydro honey. People think it's like what is that? Like a syrup? Like it's sweet? So that the name itself doesn't really do itself any any favors. So who, a lot of it is just like spreading awareness on on what the hell meat is. Who, who knew that trying to use an old Norse and Anglo-Saxon term would confuse the hell out of people? Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the meadery then. So, meadery's in Santiago, um, or you uh, or or you're located outside of Santiago for the meadery. It's like yeah, forty five minutes or an hour. 
outside uh outside of Santiago uh, um to the southwest really really nice countryside pristine farmland uh right now I'm surrounded by hills and everything's really quiet and calm uh, it's a holiday here actually <laughs> so everyone is just taking it easy and I'm I'm making mead right now well why take it easy when you can make mead so and you you said earlier that you were I think you said crushing cherries. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm uh yeah, I'm I'm using my uh speedle letter press uh to press a bunch of bunch of cherries. So so far I've gotten I've gotten a lot of juice, about twenty five liters or so. About seven gallons or something. Um so yeah, it's uh it's going well and these are these are cherries that uh I got them from San Fernando, uh which is an hour and a half south of Santiago, um, on the Pan American highway that, uh, that's where my in-laws live. And so I got, I got these from my father-in-law. He works at an agricultural school, which is, uh, where I've done a lot of my experiments with, well, uh, I buy blueberries and cherries like I did yesterday from him. And, uh, and that's where I did a lot of my wild yeast experiments too. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get back to the wild yeast in a second, but uh, on the mead side, Okay, so you got seven, uh, roughly seven gallons of cherry juice. Like, how how big are your batches of mead that you're making that I, that you're then turning around and selling? Well, so this is my first ever commercial batch, um, and so I'm I'm looking at making about uh, fifty or sorry, uh, five hundred liters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe it it'll might be about four fifty or so. We'll we'll see when I end up getting. But um, but yeah, so. I guess maybe in in two or three months or so, I'll be, um, I want to see how things go, how it how it ages. This should be about a nine percent uh, ABV, so hmm, yeah, nice. well, uh, it might be about three months before it before it mellows out. But but we'll see. This is all a big big experiment because no one really does uh, meat here on a commercial scale. Just a, a handful of people. So, so we'll see how. Oh, so go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so you're being a, a, a mead pioneer. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I love me. I love making and drinking beer, but, um, I don't know. Brewing beer on a commercial scale was just not for me. I was, I was actually involved in, in doing that with a friend, uh, a few years ago. So that ended up not working out just cause when I realized I was like, Oh wow, that's a lot of, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of janitorial work every single day. Uh, or you got to have a, a brew pub to, I guess, to, to really make it work economically, at least here in in Santiago. So uh, I just abandoned that, but I kept home brewing and, and making mead. And so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot because so far things have been good. A lot of a lot of good reception from and good feedback from people that uh, that like beer and that like wine. So we'll we'll see where it ends up this this next year. Hey, no, that that sounds like a great and fun challenge. I wish you luck in it. I mean, and I always say that people look at me and they go, "Hey, Drew, why haven't you gone and opened up a brewery?" And I'm like, "Because that's too much like real work." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm I'm cool with doing it for mead. Maybe you know, producing once or twice a month, but doing that like four or five times a week, nah, not not for me. <laughs> too too much wet and hot grain. Um. Yes. <laughs> well, so now let's let's get back to the agricultural school. You said uh, it's owned uh, owned by your 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 in laws. Uh, well, uh, well, or, no, my, they work. My uh, sorry, yeah, they he work. works and, and lives there. Okay. It's uh, it's actually it's owned by the 
by the Chilean government. It's a public school. Okay. And so it's, it's literally a, an ag school. So come learn about farming, husbandry, crops, all that sort of stuff to be able to go off and successfully run an operation, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh they got everything. It's a, uh, it's a high school. So ninth through 12th and there's like 400 students or something like that. And, um, yeah, they, they used to have a, a dairy farm and, and everything just like a few years ago, but now it's just, mo- it's really just agriculture and they got some chickens and, and eggs and things like that. And then blueberries and cherries and other goodies. Yeah. 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 Blueberries, cherries and kiwis are their main export crops. And then they got some other stuff that mostly stays here. That's interesting. So now let's get into the into the wild yeast side of things, because I think that's where the ag school and everything else kind of comes into uh, sort of an interesting crossing point with brewing. Yeah. Yeah. So ask away. What would you like to know? Well, so what exactly were you going for? I mean, like, was this or how were you going about capturing wild yeast? What was it that you were looking for? What did you find? And what are you doing with these wild yeasts now? Yeah, last year was the first uh, experiment I did. It was like May. So that's the fall for us. Mm-hmm. And I had just been reading up on, um, oh, I can't remember the, the website. The guy's a, he's, he's a Canadian, Canadian uh, biologist of some type. Um, it's one of the, it's one of the websites that always shows up when you look on, look up how to capture wild yeast. But, uh, but anyways, I, I got all the information from them and, um, and yeah, I just decided like, okay, this seems like the best time to do it because, uh, this part of Chile is, you know, in the fall, it's got really, really nice, cool nights. And especially they'd said to, to do it where there's a lot of fruit. And so there in San Fernando, there's like, um, how many, like, a uh, 120 acres or so, uh, in total, maybe 50, 60 acres of fruit. And so it just seemed like it would be the, the perfect place to, to give it a shot. All right. And so I'm trying to think uh, Canadian uh, microbiology. It's not like escarpment labs, is it? No, he's got a homebrew blog. It's, it's got like a, a Latin name. We can find it out. We'll find it out and put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so now you've got all this fruit. You've got these notes from uh, from the Canadian internet. And so, <laughs> what what exactly did you do in the fall to start going around and capturing wild yeast? Well, I, I sterilized uh, sterilized a bunch of bottles, and uh, I got some malt extract, and I just uh, well, I boiled the malt extract and put it in the bottles, covered them in cheesecloth everything sanitized and, and all that. And, uh, I guess, yeah, it was like six bottles the first time. And I put them in a bunch of different places. Um, one of them in, in the vineyard where they have uh, Cabernet Sauvignon grapes, another one where there was Merlot grapes, um, two more with blueberries and one with kiwis and one that was, and the property next door that had apples like uh, Royal Gala. So, yeah, I put them in all those different places and then let overnight with my father-in-law. We went out and, and placed them. And then in the morning, we went back and uh, closed them up and then just let it do its thing for the next few weeks or so. Just adding adding more malt extract and propagating them and, and just seeing what would come out of it. So it, did you get any 
big disasters. Like any that were like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, oof the the Merlot grapes for whatever reason. I remember that one. It just it was disgusting. I think the the bottle or the jar might have had a bad seal and some other stuff got in it because that one was just instantly bad. It was like uh like cooked vegetables. It was weird. It was like DMS, just pure DMS for whatever reason. Um, like tomatoes and stuff. But uh, and then the apple one too was was not very appealing. Um, and one of the blueberry ones was just pure acetone. So yeah, there was there were some bad ones, but then I got three out of that six. So three of them that ended up having pretty pretty interesting characteristics that I ended up using in, in making a beer. So can you define what you say or what you mean by? interesting characteristics like what drew you to those three samples yeah it was uh so i i had i had post-it notes on the on the ball on the bottles later and i didn't i had them faced away so i just wanted to see what they would smell like and it was incredible because uh i remember like the kiwi one smelled like berries and honey Mm -hmm. uh and the cabernet sauvignon one smelled like like a lifesaver like like a the artificial grape flavor. <laughs> it was so weird. And I was just on its own. Uh, no grapes in it at all. It was just put in the, the vineyard overnight. And then the, the other one, the blueberry one was just more like mild. It, it had a little bit of a hint of acetone, but I figured, okay, let's, let's see what happens with it. And so. then, and so you had these three cultures that, uh, that you were digging on. So what you, what'd you do with these in terms of making beer? Well, I, uh, I ended up making a, a, like a Flanders red, more or less. And so just because I knew that I, I never got to the point of, uh, isolating them. And I just figured, oh, well, you know, Mike, if I have to spend a bunch of money to get a, like a Flanders culture of, you know, with, uh, like a mixed culture with bacteria and, and yeast present, I figured, well, if I got my own, more or less, let's see what happens. And, uh, yeah, it ended up being quite the success. Some some had a little bit more lacto than others, but uh, but I ended up finishing up the last one just like a, a month ago. And uh, so, yeah, they were like about a year and a half old, and they were really good, good beers. Oh, interesting. So now, did you do anything to save these samples so that you could redo this, or are you just going to have to go back out to the orchards and pray to the fruit gods that they'll give you good bugs? <laughs> well, I not but... Uh, but yeah, I actually, I saved a little bit. And so some of them I've used more than others just because I like the, the flavor profile a little more. Unfortunately, all those really cool, interesting sounding aromas, uh, disappeared for whatever reason after that, uh, that first beer. Mm-hmm. And so now everything I get, it's just more of a, they're, they're, they can be a little more phenolic or just kind of neutral, uh, a little acidic tang to it. But uh, but yeah, I'm up to tenth generation on the on the blueberries, and then I got third generation with uh, with the kiwi and the cabernet sauvignon. Very interesting. So again, just to recap, it's basically yeah, take bottles with a little bit of wort extract. Make sure you can kind of keep them protected from creepy crawly and dust, but otherwise let things settle into them overnight, and then take them away and let them grow. And then sample and try and then whatever works, use. Yeah, exactly. I just, uh, I don't know, I, I got a lot of help from the internet and that really, that really helped things 
because otherwise I never would have been able to do it. The wonders of, of the internet. Uh, gotta love it. So yeah, it's been working out pretty well. I've, and I've done more since then. Oh, have you? Uh, like any any other interesting ones that uh, that you've pulled up? Yeah, well, I got uh, I got some samples um, when I went to a Patagonia, uh, like in the Valdivian rainforest. So this is like ten hours or so south of Santiago. I mean, it's it's southern Chile, and this is the area that would be like the closest thing to maybe um, like British Columbia or something. Just really really rainy area and this was in a, a national park and i got a couple of samples from there and i haven't tried those beers yet and just <laughs> i've been too busy but uh they fermented out and, and everything I, I did a couple gallons each with them so we'll see but they seem fine they're just doing their thing well uh, next thing you know we're gonna find out that i don't know there's something significant in those rainforests and and you know you've made medical beer or something who knows <laughs> You've discovered a new health tonic. Yeah, pe- people would be into that. I think here. <laughs> See now, I wonder if because I usually uh, I usually try and recommend whenever whenever people talk about yeast capture because obviously I live here in LA and so there's a lot of people who want to do it and I'm always like if you're going to do this go get yourself someplace semi wild or where there's a lot of fruit activity because uh, the only thing I'm going to be culturing here in my backyard is stuff falling off of an avocado tree or a persimmon tree and tire dust from the uh, 210 freeway. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm assuming uh, that was part of the reason to go out to uh, go out to the countryside was just to hopefully capture a better class of bugs and less, uh, less yeah. city life. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it, it was something that I remember when um, like the first few times I went out there a few years ago, and the little that I knew about uh, wild yeast back then, when I saw the grapes and uh, and the blueberries too, it it was it just really popped out to me. I was like, whoa, those things are covered in yeast. Like there's there's all this I don't remember the scientific name for it, but the the like the white dust, mm-hmm. basically the the yeast that's they were just coating all the blueberries. Um, and and the grapes and so i figured hmm there could be something something worth doing here well and i know there are some people out there who they'll they'll do that sort of spontaneous inoculation but instead of just doing it airborne they'll they'll take some of the fruit and they'll drop it into wort so that the wort can wash off what's on the on the skins so that's a that's another approach that i've seen people do with it because yeah you're totally right i mean if you see white dusting on on your fruit that's uh, yeast it may or may not do something yeah, good. That, that was the first time, actually, that I ever did that. Uh, I just grabbed a bunch of blueberries and took them home and put them in like a, a Pyrex pan with with some sugar. I, I realized later it should have been uh, wart extract, but but yeah, that that ended up working too. And that was crazy because there was there was no acidity with that one. Hmm. Unfortunately, I did not keep the yeast. <laughs> the, the first ever experiment ended up probably being the best. Well, just look at this way. The first ever experiment being a success is what kept you moving along this line. So maybe there's greater success to come down the line with some of those. That's a nice look, I think. Try, uh, try and look on the bright side of life, right? Uh, bring you back yeah. to your money Python. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, so I was going to say, I mean, now that you're playing around with doing some of this wild yeast capture and you have your, your mead project that you're working on and everything else, you know, are you, are you going to try and 
do any of the isolation and propagation type activities? I mean, I know that you said that you didn't originally, but is that uh, another possible step that you're going to take this or are you just like, no, I'm enjoying the fun of it in the past year. So I've, I've become friends with, uh, a couple of guys that are, are part of a team with, uh, Kaita. Kaita is a, a, is a wild yeast company. And I, you guys talked about them. I think when, when Denny was recapping his trip down here mm-hmm. and, and yeah, they, those, those guys are incredible. They have like, um, I don't, I don't remember hundreds, 200, 500 or so different wild yeast that, that have been isolated from all across Chile. And actually a couple of them have been sold, uh, I think to Lalaman. They ended up, uh, like in, in the past, um, I'll have to look up which one that was, but, uh, but yeah, they, they have had success with wine and, and now they've been doing things with beer and they're trying to sell to the, to the craft beer community here, um, with some of their yeast. But, uh, but yeah, actually just a couple of days ago did an experiment with, uh, with four wine yeasts of theirs that, uh, that had very interesting characteristics, like for white wines, like for Chardonnays. So I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever do anything, uh, with mine. They, they've talked, they've, they've offered to, to isolate them, uh, my yeast, mm-hmm. but I just never gotten around to doing it. But, but that would be, that would be interesting. I'm, I'm definitely into the whole wild yeast thing. So I would like to be able to say that my, uh, that my mead that I'm making is a hundred percent Chilean ingredients. So with that, I could actually do it. No, yeah, that would be, I think that would be kind of interesting. The yeast culturing company that you, that you're talking about in some ways, I mean, that reminds me of like a, a bootleg biology in Tennessee, you know, with that same sort of thing where they're doing a lot of local capture. So they're, they're getting yeast from Virginia or California or something like that. They're, they're actually sending out kits to people to go, Hey, capture your local yeast. And we'll see if we can, if we can make something interesting out of it. I mean, that sounds like a kind I've of the- heard really good things about those guys. I would like to, to, to send them some of my yeast. I've been told by, by people to, to do that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure Jeff would, uh, would love to have some Chilean yeast in his arsenal. Uh, <laughs> talking about getting him up on the show because he, yeah, he is doing some really interesting stuff. All right. Don't they have like a project? They want to isolate a, a yeast strain in every zip code in the U S something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Although um, I'm not certain about some of the zip codes, like, you know, any of the ones here in LA <laughs> or New York, <laughs> <laughs> those might be questionable. yeast strain. They're, they're hardy. They're tough. Um, yeah, they're tough. <laughs> all right. Well, so now we've got mead, we've got wild yeast, we've got your, your beer project going on now. I know that when Denny was down there, you all were talking, and one of the things I think that you all were talking about was an idea that I had been playing around with, but that you actually went and executed on, I, I think, if I've got the story correct, uh, but about uh, Chicha Moreira and, you know, sort of beer in, in, inspiration. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I started toying around with that idea um, last year. Okay. Well, first, let's let's back up and make sure the, uh, the audience knows. Okay, so I think most people are, who are beer nerds are probably familiar with the idea of chicha, you know, which is sort of indigenous beers to South America made with corn, uh, typically also quinoa and some other places and, and whatnot. But those are the ones that are infamously chewed up by the women and spat into buckets so that they start uh, – <laughs> Uh, they start converting the starch and the corn into sugar, but chicha Moreta is something slightly different. So, yeah, yeah, you can, 
you can do it that way, the the traditional way. But um, I like. I think most people think that it's just kind of kind of gross, even if you boil it like uh, like you're supposed to. It's just not very. Uh, it, it's just not very fun, as as we all saw in that episode uh, uh, with with dogfish head when they were making it. Everybody spitting into cups for days. Uh, not the <laughs> not the most fun thing to do, even if you just want to make five gallons. So yeah, <laughs> I ended up doing um, a cereal mash. That's what I've done most of the time that I've been working with it. Right. So now chicha Moreta is what usually like it's not it's not regular maize. It's blue or purple, right? And then usually with fruit mixed into it and a couple of other things, and largely I think non-alcoholic, right? Or do I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, here in Santiago, if you go to, uh, to a Peruvian restaurant, a lot of times they're selling chichimora that is just like a it's like a juice, um, and uh, you'll see the, the common recipe is uh, at least what we can get here in, in Santiago. I, I know, having gone to Peru, it's totally different there. Uh, at least a lot of different varieties, but the standard you'll see like with pineapple uh, with with some pineapple juice added to it or um uh i think cinnamon m- maybe an- another thing like cloves but basically yeah that cinnamon with the with the purple corn all right and so you took purple corn and did a cereal mash like you know all the all the good steps right you know a little, little bit of two row in there or six row to convert bring that up to a boil that sort of stuff right yeah yeah, that's what uh, that's what I've been toying with, and that that was what I had done the the first time. It was actually not with purple; it was with uh, white corn, with okay. some different white corn. But yeah, I guess like ten times or so the last couple of years I've made them. And what keeps drawing you back to the idea of making this one particular beer? Well, it's been um, I don't know. It's just it's not the funnest thing to make. <laughs> to, to be honest, it, it, the cereal mash and there's just so many, there's just so much you got to do when I've done it with like 50, 60% corn, even once with 80, that was way too much. Never again. But, uh, yeah, 50% or so is, is a good amount to, to work with of the total grains. And, uh, it just, it tastes really good. It's like, um, it's very crisp. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, like in in the best way possible like a like a light beer like a, a natty light or a you know coors light or something in in the sense that it's a very light body very refreshing and uh it, because i like to make it with a uh, a little a little bit of you know fruity hops a little bit of mosaic or or citra something like that just like an ounce or two in total for 5 gallons uh, it has a very refreshing taste to it. And then also the corn itself gives a, a pretty nice, interesting flavor. It's like a little fruity on its own, which is pretty, pretty cool. You wouldn't really think about that well, coming from corn. Well, I was going to say, so now you said you, you did this with white corn. I mean, are there, are there differences in the flavor that you get between say white or blue or purple or, or any of the other? Oh, corn varieties? Yeah. I, it's been it's been a while since I've uh, since I've made one. I guess it was earlier this year. Um, I, I made it. I made several, but uh, but yeah, I remember doing one with a with like a it was a white 
corn with red tips, and that one, it, it smelt like the tortillas, like all the corn tortillas when I was a kid, what, what we'd always have. So <laughs> that, that was really cool. It's like stepping into a tortilleria, and it was just so weird to, to, to experience that. And because then the other ones were just kind of like, eh, it smells like just sweet corn or whatever. Um, right. But then, yeah, the the blue and purple ones, they got a little little fruity component going on there. So that's also pretty, pretty interesting and unexpected. Well, how much of that blue or purple coloring survives the whole fermentation and the drive to the acidic and all that sort of stuff? Good question. Um so in, in all the different experience, uh, experience, uh, experiments, sorry, that, uh, that I've done, um, it seems like the, the best mix is to use purple corn kind of like as if it was, uh, like a toasted grain, mm-hmm. like maybe just 5%. I always do a little bit more, but, uh, yeah, about, about 10, 15% of the purple corn. Cause that'll give so much of the color. And then the other 20 30% or so, whatever I'm, I'm shooting for, uh, the rest will, will be, uh, the blue corn. Blue corn has really good flavor, even better than the purple. But, uh, when you make it on its own with say like a uh, malted barley, like a Pilsner malt, it, it loses a lot of its color and ends up coming out kind of pink, which is, which mm-hmm. is interesting. But, uh, but yeah, not, not purple anymore. Hmm. Interesting. So wait, so oh, let me make sure I have that right then. So, if you do just blue corn, the beer comes out pinkish, or is it it's still pinkish even with the purple in there? Uh, yeah. Well, well, that way it stays just pink when it's just with the with the blue, like right. the blue spotted corn that that I get here at the market. So, yeah, it's pink, but then the purple, if you put it in in a in a good amount, fifteen percent or so, then it'll really start coming in uh, as purple. And if you like, if like you know, like a like a fuchsia mm-hmm. or something, ruby color. And then once you really get to the to the higher levels, like <laughs> I made one that was eighty percent purple corn, which oof, tasted disgusting, but uh, it was beautiful. It, it, it was purple. It was the most purple thing I'd ever drank in my entire life. More than purple drink. <laughs> <laughs> More than purple drink. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so now that that makes me. Makes me go back and want to know. So, when you said you did eighty percent purple corn and it tasted disgusting, like what did it taste like? Was it just too earthy? I mean, did I mean? Yeah, it, it was. So I don't know if it was because I had used like too much of the amylase uh, enzyme to to help convert that time because mm-hmm. I didn't do a, a cereal mash. But um, I don't know. I just I didn't like it. It was uh, it was strange. It just tasted off. It, it was kind of. Kind of like what you said, a little on the the earthy or, or very earthy, um, kind of harsh flavor. It was it was not good. So that's when I learned to to respect the purple corn and just keep it in a in a smaller amount. Use it for its use it for its powers in restraint. And I also yes. I also think there's probably something going on there with the visual cue of our brains look at something that purple and go, no, I'm not supposed to drink that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like a. It was like a kind of even like a red wine, so it was it was strange to see that as in a beer, <laughs> frothy carbonated red wine, yummy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so Garrett, before we uh, take our leave and let you get back to crushing cherries and making mead, uh, is there anything else that you want people to know about uh, 
you know, being a brewer in Chile or Chile in general, or, uh, you know, really about the, the life of, uh, of a Santiago brewer? Uh, well, I guess just that, uh, yeah, Chile is a, it's a pretty cool country. It's got a lot, a lot of good stuff going for it. It's, it's, it's an incredibly gorgeous country. As everybody knows, when they look at the map, it's just a long sliver, uh, of the western coast of South America. So it's got just a little bit of everything in, in terms of climate. And I guess what makes it interesting as a home brewer too, or for anyone that's interested in, in food and stuff like that is that there's just, uh, there's so many options. Uh, there's, there's so many different things that are grown throughout the country. So the the diversity is just uh, incredible. So it's a it's a pretty cool, pretty cool place to to check out, and I highly recommend it for anybody that you know wants to to go see a bunch of really pretty places uh, and nice people, try some some cool different types of food and and everything, uh, and also they can try some delicious wine and and some pretty good beers. So. Yeah, I I recommend coming to Chile if you ever get the chance, and going over to Argentina and, and Peru too if if you can. Oh yeah, I have a friend who's about to drive uh, from LA down to the southern tip of South America, so I'll make sure to 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 give him information from you on where to go. Oh so, yeah. So all right, well hey, Garrett, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me uh, this morning. I know you're busy with all your all your projects that you got going. And uh, I really just want to say thank you and uh, good luck. And yeah, we got to figure out if you can make a purple, purple Chicha Moreta that doesn't make people go, no, bad, bad idea. <laughs> yeah. When, uh, maybe when things, uh, start to, to start to die down a little bit after I've got all this, all this mead made, maybe I can get back into, to home brewing some, some Chicha Moreta. That would be nice. I'll, I'll keep y'all posted. There we go. And we'll make sure, uh, if you want, I think we should put up a recipe for uh, what your attempts have been so far so that people can take a look at it and learn. So we'll put that on the website and we'll include it in the show notes and everybody can have their own shot at making sort of a Chilean classic of new forms. All right. Yeah. Yeah. A modern, modern take on, on an, on an old traditional ancient recipe. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you, Drew and, and Denny. I, I really appreciate uh, you guys inviting me to, uh, to speak on the podcast. And and yeah, any anything I can help you all out with, anything related to Chile or, or South America, would be my pleasure. So, uh, interesting stuff, huh? What would you think? Oh, I mean, I thought it was great. I, th- I love talking to Garrett. He is definitely a very approachable and sort of a playful sort of brewer. And after all, I mean, any man who's doing a Chicha Morada thing, that's a man after my own heart. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as far as I know, he's planning on uh, coming to the Homebrew Con in Portland this summer. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, get together with him there and maybe even get him on the show that we record there. And more importantly, have a beer. <laughs> yeah, right. Even better. Ta-da! Beer, remember. It's good for the soul. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show with uh, some Q&A and something other than beer. So stick around, and we will be right back. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. 
Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. quick announcement here. I know that some of you are thinking that, hey, it's the New Year's. Where are the Brewer's resolutions? Well, they're not going to be in this episode because we want to get a little more time to collect everybody's thoughts. So you still have time to get your thoughts into us via whatever mechanism you can find us at. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com, 626-765-1-ALE, or Facebook or Instagram or wherever else you'll see us posting. Leave us your thoughts on what your Brewer's resolution is. I'm going to arbitrarily pick somebody by some criteria I don't even know until I read the resolution and go, that's the winner, is going to get a special prize pack from me. Very special prize pack involving cans. So this episode comes out on January 3rd. You have until January 10th to get us your brew year's resolutions. So that's right. We're giving you a little extra time so you can figure out what you're going to do with your brew year and then let us know. So once again, get us your brew year's resolutions and you may win a special prize. It's time, not for us to talk about beer, but for us to try and prove whether or not we're smart enough to talk about beer. That's so right. We have, a, we have a handful of questions here today, and the first one goes to you, Denny. It's from our good buddy, Jim Leininger, who says, On episode 24, you said that you use monofilament fishing line to hold your hop bag to the dip tube. Do you use nylon or fluorocarbon? What pound test? Do you have a color preference? What not do you use? Let me suggest 12-pound test, maximum ultra green, attached using a, a bimini twist. Though I suppose an Arbor Knot would suffice if you're short on time. What do you uh, say about that, Danny? Yeah, Jim, you got me, buddy. <laughs> I uh, I buy whatever monofilament is at the local hardware store. Uh, I bought a spool of 1,000 feet about 15 years ago, and it will last me more than the rest of my life. Uh, I do know that it is nylon. Well, I don't know. I think it's nylon. The rest of the stuff, I have no idea what you're talking about, buddy. So uh, come to HomebrewCon in Portland and fill me in. Well, I was going to say, you might want to make sure that you're on that 12-pound test because those hot bags can flail about wildly and it would be bad yeah, if, I, if they snapped. I, I try to keep less than 12 pounds of hops per bag. You heard her here first. Denise says less than 12 pounds. Anything, anything more <laughs> is a sin. Really? Next question comes from Derek Clark via email. He says, I've been binge listening to your podcast over the last while. I wonder how much he's drooling. Uh, and I've really been enjoying them. Oh, now we know that his brain has been damaged. I've got a quick and simple question for Drew regarding his tinctures. I've been trying to get the flavor right on my Juniper Saison for a while now. Uh-oh, this is one of those you talked about a little while ago. And my next attempt will involve a Juniper Vodka tincture, which I have sitting on a shelf doing its thing. 
I made the tincture by grinding, crushing dried juniper berries, putting them in an empty 35-centiliter bottle, and then adding the vodka back in. The extra vodka was disposed of safely. Ah, good, good. The question is, how does Drew go about filtering his tinctures, as mine is looking pretty murky with a thick layer of berries at the bottom? Well, first, that extra vodka would probably now be called infused gin, so I hope you did (laughs) dispose of that safely. Oh, wait, no, he's talking the extra vodka. Yeah, before the juniper. juniper. All right, never mind. That's just just a little water. Uh... So, yeah, the, the big problem with tinctures is that they can get sludge because after all, vodka is a set, uh, because after all, vodka is a solvent and you are putting uh, particulate matter in there, uh, particularly if you're crushing up dried berries like that. Thing I do is pretty simple. I usually use a combination of uh, cold and thyme. So I usually will throw a vodka tincture into the freezer because it isn't freezing. And sometimes it's helpful in terms of freezing other things out like cocoa butter. Uh, other times it just causes a sludge to sort of solidify and go down to the bottom. And then I will actually usually pour the vodka through a uh, coffee paper filter uh, on a mesh sieve and try to be careful about, you know, catching too much of the sludge out of the bottle and do that. And I usually am pretty successful in getting those clear. Yep. I do the same kind of thing. Works great. All right. Next question is from Craig Arkfield via email. And remember that email address is podcast at experimentalbrew.com if you have a question. Craig says, I am interested in your keg fermentation technique, but can't remember which episode you talked about it. I listened to the Purge of Gigantic episode, and you talked about dip tubes. My two main questions are about the airlock and transfers. Do you remove the pressure release valve, and then what goes in its place? For the transfers, do you need to have the airlock in place? You hook up to the end coupler? Does it matter if you use ball or pin lock? I currently have two ball lock kegs, but I think pin lock may fit in my fermentation fridge better. Thank you for your help, and I love the podcast. I also love hearing you on my local podcast, Come and Brew It. First on, big old shout out to our friends over at Texas Brewing, really? Come and Brew It. Awesome guys. Uh, so, Craig, uh, so your two questions. PRV, I do not pull it and replace it. I just simply open it. And I usually refer to that as pulling it because usually it's a, you know one of those little rings. So I pull the PRV, but I do not actually pull the PRV out of the lid. I just open it up. I do and exactly cover that the before. same thing. Now I do know other people who do actually pull the the whole thing, and they'll they'll place an airlock or a blow off tube in there. But since I'm trying to do open fermentation most of the time with those things, I don't bother putting an airlock in there. There are other people who will do things like pull the post on the gas side and put an airlock or a blow off tube on that. Uh, again, if you're wanting to do closed fermentation, that's a perfectly valid and accepted thing to do. Now, regard to your other question about the transfers, uh, no, the airlock needs to be out of the way because you need the, the keg to actually be a pressure vessel again. So that means the PRV gets closed or whatever airlocking mechanism is has been replaced with the proper parts. And then, yeah, what I will do is I will hook the liquid line up to the liquid and uh, on the on the fermenta- fermentation keg and the liquid side on the receiving keg, pop the valve on the receiving keg, and then use CO2 pressure on the inside of the fermentation keg, and then just let it let it do its magic. If you don't have shortened dip tubes in your kegs like I do uh, for my fermentation kegs, then you'll want to make sure that you actually give, uh, instead of taking the beer straight off the dip tube, you'll want to actually be able to blow out the first little bit of it because it's going to contain a lot of yeast sludge. You'll want to stop the liquid flow by pulling up the liquid disconnect real quick. 
once you actually get a clear beer, then hook the, the jumper line completely with the second disconnect and hook it into the receiving keg. But otherwise, easy as pie. Yeah, that's pretty much the way I do it too. I use a transfer tube that has flare fittings on it so I can just screw the quick disconnect on. So when I'm getting started, I leave the quick disconnect off of the end of, for the keg that I'm going to so that when the first little bit of sledge comes out, I can blow that off into a pitcher or something like that. Then, uh, like Drew said, pull the PRV uh, to stop the flow of beer, screw that other quick disconnect back on, hook it up to the other keg. And remember, you're hooking up out to out, not the ends, the out to the out, because that has a tube that goes all the way to the bottom of your keg. And that's it. It's simple, and uh, I think you'll love it, Craig. Yeah, and one of the other points about that is, you know, look, if you're going to a fully purged keg, you know, you think, oh, I don't have to worry about necessarily going to the liquid side. I could just let it run out of the, the gas side and go. One, I don't like to get beer into the gas side at all if I don't have to. And the other part is, yeah, you'll still get a lot of foaming, and that's just bad. So don't do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Definitely so. Right. Okay, we got one more. Yep, last question comes from Neil Hamilton Jr., who's writing uh, D&D. Hey, there's a, uh, there's a catchy acronym. <laughs> really? D&D, first and foremost, thanks for the podcast. I love the format. The Brew File Show has been a great addition. Woo! Uh, my question is regarding Brutan B. During episode 38, I heard Joe Formanak mention that people were noticing more hot break slash protein precipitate. Would this affect the beer's head retention? Did any of the Igors note anything by head retention? I don't I don't recall that they did notice anything, did they? No. I don't think anybody said anything about it. I can tell you that my own experience with Brutan B, which I now use in every beer that I make, is that it definitely has no negative effect on head formation or retention. Um it you know, I and I won't I won't go as far to say that it improves it because I would have to do a side-by-side test to make that kind of claim. But I can tell you that uh, the foam in my beers is no different than it was before I started using Brutan. Uh, I'm just noticing the, the great effects of uh, extended malt flavor in my beers and shelf life. There you go. Brutan B now available at your local home retail establishment, as long as they have an account with Brewcraft USA. So yeah. go out there. You can go get yourself That's now. That's right, man. Yep. You can you can get the stuff now and it's inexpensive and we encourage you to at least give it a try and decide for yourself. There you go. Because we love it. And now I think that's it for questions today. So let's give I you think some, it is. Let's give you something other than beer real quick because hey, it's the new year and there's always time for something other than beer. Last year saw a number of notable celebrity deaths like it always does. But one of the ones that hit me the hardest was losing well, losing that raucous little schoolboy from ACDC. And well, that put me into mind of the ACDC song Thunderstruck. And I ran across somebody who had decided to do something absolutely silly and insane. And they took a live performance of ACDC performing Thunderstruck and they made it 5% <laughs> faster. Every time somebody in the band sang thunder. <laughs> now that is silly. Oh, yeah. It's unstreamable. We'll include the URL in the show notes. But it is absolutely hysterical because it starts off just like you think it would. You know, you've been thunderstruck. And the next thing you know, it's it goes beyond uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks on helium and cocaine and everything else into <laughs> something sort of transitory and hallucinogenic and, you know, seeing the eyes of God. <laughs> 
Okay, you know, I may just have to take your word for that one. <laughs> Trust me, take a couple oh. minutes, watch it, you'll you'll amuse yourself if nothing else. Yeah, right. Well, I can I can use that. Okay, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're all over the place. I'm on a bunch of different beer forums, including the AHA discussion forum. And Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. So if you want to ask us a question, let me start again. And if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he is Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And of course, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 